Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Hamilton's Medical Officer of Health says COVID-19 cases in city schools is inevitable. We just have to be prepared. The Black Lives Matter movement getting a huge push from professional sport. Is it going to make a difference? They are sending tanker ships down the West Coast through the Panama Canal and then back up the East Coast in order to get Alberta oil to refineries in the Maritimes. Wouldn't a pipeline just be a lot easier? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Hey, parents and kids, it's time to unite, not divide. We have more in common than differences. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Good afternoon. It is 12.10. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show uh, on the air between the pipes, as he has done for the last 24 weeks, and we're very grateful for that. Uh, as well... <laughs> You can give yourself a bigger clap than just the golf clap, Will. You go ahead. You give yourself a whole round from the stadium. For you and Liz, by the way. There you go. This is a stadium, by the way, that holds 100,000 people, and there's really only 10,000 in it. They're all uh, beautifully socially distanced wearing masks, I might add. Uh, it is 12-11 uh, now, because I've wasted a minute. It is 12-11. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. I said that. Also, don't forget Facebook and Twitter. You can join us there. That's where you'll find the podcast edition of the commentary. We would love to hear from you. You know, I was thinking about this. Uh, I was talking to my wife about this last night as, as we're, you know, watching various news reports. Think, and you know, we, we all know what everybody's going through with the kids going back to class. You know, we're parents, we're in the same predicament everybody else is in. Um, but, but it's, you know, I was thinking and, you know, my wife and I, my, my youngest is in grade eight now. So we've been doing this for a while now. And, you know, every day, every first day we would walk the kids to school. And, you know, as they're getting older, obviously they're like a block ahead of you now, but you know, you do the ritual and, you know, the meeting of the parents and, uh, and the kids and the teachers and everybody, you know, out in the schoolyard, it's just, it's like, it's literally organized chaos. Like you can barely hear the bell for, you know, for all the enthusiasm, right? And you think this year, that's going to be, it's going to be way different. It's going to be totally the opposite of that. And, you know, we've been doing that for years. And you also have to feel for the kindergarten kids who their first day, their first school experience will be with a mask, behind a mask. So uh, odd world we're living in, but uh, you know what? The kids are resilient. They will get through it. And a little positivity from the parents, uh, it's no different than, you know, adding an extra something into the backpack. Uh, and as well as the crayons and the pencils or whatever, you're also throwing in a couple of extra masks. Uh, it's just the sign of the times and where we are at. You know, we're slowly starting to find out more information in regard to what the actual first day uh, would look like. Uh, at the town hall last night, Dr. Elizabeth uh, Richardson talked about uh, the risks and such of going back to school. And, you know, even though we're, we're putting in place all these precautions, uh, it isn't 100% and we are bound to see uh, other cases. Here's a, a series of clips of what she had to say. The bottom line is that we are not in a state right now where we're looking to eliminate this disease. We are looking to keep the risks low, but we do expect we'll continue to have some low level of disease. The decision about sending children to school is a personal choice. 
Um, they need to think through the risks and benefits of returning to school based on their own family situation. All right, that's Dr. Elizabeth Richardson uh, talking about uh, Hamilton schools opening up. Uh, unavailable for comment today on this. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, medical doctor, health policy expert. Ahmad, you, we certainly have talked about over the last couple of weeks uh, the concerns and the anxiety that students and parents uh, obviously are feeling uh, about the return to school. Uh, and we've certainly, everybody's been pretty open with us that it is inevitable that there will be cases. I guess that's acceptable unless it's your kid. How, how, do, we, how do we digest all of this, Ahmad? Well, hello, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show again. Yes, I think we're going back to the message that we said before, and it's actually reassuring to hear her uh, confirm that, which is that there's no perfect plan. There's no that bulletproof plan that will ensure 100% safety of all children that goes to school teachers and staff members. It's not just the children we're worried about here, but also the staff members and teachers that are going day to day to school. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is that over time, it's going to be wait and watch. We're going to see as a staggered approach, opening up schools, hoping for the best. It does not mean that we're going to have zero co- cases of COVID or that we're going to have a low risk of exposure. All that we're doing is we're trying to do the best that we can under the current, current circumstances. And the current circumstances being that we have COVID-19 pandemic with no vaccine at the moment. And many, including yourself, have expressed that the risk and reward, obviously the reward is greater because the kids need to get back. Yes, and I think that, you know, I'm a little bit conscious of that idea that, you know, we don't want to put the message out there that it's a 100% bulletproof plan that if you send your children back, where the benefits are so much better than COVID-19, the risk of getting COVID-19. The virus is a serious virus. We're all concerned about it from a public health perspective and a population health perspective. All our our, uh, big uh, chief medical officers throughout the country are not underplaying the risk of COVID-19. What we're all, I think, trying to say is that there's the benefit to children going back to school, and parents seem to agree. The majority of Canadian parents, when they've done a survey, have indicated that they want their children to go back to school. They're just not sure how that would look like. And they have a a level of anxiety that even our own prime minister, Justin Trudeau, just recently posted uh, a big thing on his Instagram and his other social media platforms where he uh, shared the same concerns of other parents, that he's also concerned whether he should send his children back. And he sympathizes and empathizes with all the parents out there. So I think we're all trying to do the best that we can, given the current circumstance. So what are you expecting come week one, week two, right into, the say, the first four weeks of school? I'm actually a little bit optimistic because and the reason why I say that is because I think we've done a really, really good job here in Ontario of that like, stage opening. We've seen that the case numbers didn't really spike. We did it very uh, gradual and calculated. And we seem to be approaching school reopening with the same sort of mindset. Uh, I think that all school boards are really trying to, like, emphasize the need for face masks, hand sanitization in place, physical distancing. So I think the measures are there, similar to what we've done in, in, a, in an economy and society level, and we're trans- translating it to schools. That doesn't mean that I, I think that we're going to have zero cases or that we might have a risk of exposure. What I'm trying to say is that I don't know if we're going to have that big numbers that we, we're scared to get. I think it's always best to be scared and prepare for the worst. Uh, and then hope for the best. And I think that's the philosophy everybody should be adopting right now is that, you know, do the best that you can as a parent, as a teacher, as a policymaker, try to think about school reopening and hope for the best The numbers will stay low. Right now, the numbers in Ontario are really good. And so overall, we're very optimistic about school reopening.
So we've talked about this before, Ahmad. Every parent who has kids know what it's like in September and October when everybody gets back together and all of a sudden the cold or the flu starts doing the rounds just because they're all back together again. How can we tell if, you know, your child has come down with one of those typical things or is COVID-19? Does that mean everybody who has some sort of symptoms must get tested? Well, that's an excellent question for a healthcare provider of the child. So I think that if a parent, if a child comes home with any symptoms that they're concerned about, they should reach out to their healthcare provider immediately and let them make that assessment on the spot. I mean, I think our healthcare providers throughout the country now have the capacity to be able to diagnose COVID-19 and to be able to channel the child or the parent or the staff or the teacher to the appropriate resources. So if a child comes home and you're worried that it might be allergies, it might be the common cold, it might be the flu, or it might be COVID-19, this is the time where you ha- you should have information at hand to know where to go seek that uh, that medical advice. And in the, most often with children, it's their family doctor, and parents should be communicating now with their family doctor that what happens if my child comes home and I'm worried that they might have COVID-19? Who do I contact? Do I reach out to you directly? Is there an online resource that I can seek? I mean, the government has provided multiple government websites that help with assessment and screening that we can definitely take advantage of. But, it's, you know, it's, it's different when it's a parent and it's their child. They're going to be very concerned. Yeah. They want to hear to somebody. So I, I urge them to seek out their healthcare provider. They're ready for that and they're preparing for it. So what happens if your child comes down with it? Obviously, there's protocol in place where, you know, the the classes remain the same. So then there's the contact tracing that starts with those within the class. But how is this likely to not only affect a kid, but even an average adult? And, And let's just assume they're average and they're healthy. Well, I mean, the evidence on COVID-19 is that if somebody gets it, the spectrum is wide, right? So some people get it and it's asymptomatic and you have no symptoms and you're okay. There's just the risk of you actually giving the virus to somebody else. But in other cases, we've seen and we know that the evidence is there that, uh, you know, unfortunately, people could die from COVID-19, especially if they're immunocompromised or they're of an older age. Now, when children get it, the concern there is that uh, we don't know really, we still don't have enough evidence to really see how it plays out in children. We've seen cases in the U.S. where some children actually got it and was really terribly bad. Uh, and in some cases, it wasn't. So I think we're waiting to see that data to re-examine how it plays out in children. And I think overall, globally, there's really good evidence now on our age demographic. And by that, I mean middle-aged to older adults. But younger adults and children is still an emerging area. And we're still gathering data on what that will play out and what that would look like. Ahmad, I just thought of a question that a listener had sent me, and I haven't had a chance to ask you this, and it's, and it's sort of off off a branch here. But um, in regard to the traditional influenza we see every year, how many Canadians die? Because we're seeing conflicting numbers. How many Canadians die from influenza from the average seasonal flu every year? Uh, that's a good question. Every year that number changes depending on how many people actually get the vaccine or how bad the virus, the strand is. I don't have on top of my head, to be honest with you, the the latest yeah. figures. I've been so focused on COVID-19 that I, I forgot the figures on the influenza. But it is, uh, you know, initially the uh, argument was that the influenza killed more people than COVID-19. Right. That That's not, I'm not sure, Scott, that's going to be true anymore, right? Yeah, like, I don't think it is, yeah. At, yeah, I don't think so. I think that we're seeing the numbers are just increasing. I mean, you know, influenza kills people mostly in the winter season. We're coming into the fall and we're still talking about COVID-19. So, like, I think that we're going to have to wait to see that I suspect that COVID-19 numbers will surpass the influenza death rates. 
So are, are there two things that could happen here, Ahmad, and obviously something somewhere in the middle where, say, October rolls around and everything remains relatively stable? We're at the, you know, maybe one or two or, uh, you know, who knows how this is going to pan out in the actual classroom. But if the numbers stay relatively st- uh, uh, stable through October, what does that say? Well, it tells us that we did the right things. I think we saw the same thing with the reopening of the economy. We were very worried as we were reopening things that we're going to have massive spikes. And, you know, there were some people who said, look, numbers didn't go so high, so why did we overreact? Well, the reason why they weren't so high is because we overreacted. Yeah. We really got ahead of it. Everybody was worried. Everybody was concerned. Everybody was asking the tough questions that we're asking now with school reopening. And so the same philosophy applies to that. My hope is that you and I will be talking in October and we'll say, look, you know, we opened, reopened school, nothing really bad happened. And we're like, great, that means what we've done and what everybody's been trying to do is working and we need to keep vigilant. I mean, this virus is evil. Like, you know, it does not discriminate against seasons. It does not care how old you are. It's going to try to find a human or animal host. And so we're trying, everybody's trying the best they can to stop it and it is in steps and make sure that it doesn't progress any further so we don't have a similar situation that's going on in the U.S. right now. Um, many have talked about the second wave, what that's going to look like, when it's going to come. I'm not sure if we're in it or not in it at this point, but it seems likely if it is going to happen, it's going to happen uh, this fall. Are, are you confident that even with you know putting these people back together again, whether it's stu- uh, whether it's students, kids, whether it's uh, society in a stage three situation, that those basic things that we were all and you all taught us right back at the beginning, washing the hands a lot, making sure you've got your face covered. Could it be as simple as that as getting us through all of this? I mean, we even heard, and I think we talked about this before, Australia showing a lower number of seasonal flu uh, simply because people are protecting themselves against COVID. Exactly. And I think we're all practicing society, better public health sort of uh, practices. And so, you know, it's actually funny when we talk about this now and we say, what did we do with hand sanitizers before COVID-19? They were still available in the market, but we rarely ever used them. And now you're using it at least not, if not five times a day, 10 times a day. So I think that practice, a humans in, in our nature, we're adaptable uh, and behavior change takes some time. But once we get there, we sort of keep those practices. And what I mean by now, by now like, I don't think we're going to stop people from like using hand sanitizer. I think maybe that I will say hand washing for 20 seconds has proven to be more difficult for individuals. Uh, using hand sanitizer, a pump quickly in your hand has not. So I think that will continue throughout past COVID-19, which is a great thing. We would want that to, to stay there. The face mask is would be one to watch. I'm really curious to know whether as a society, especially us Canadians, if we've really taken that on board and are we going to become like an Asian city where the majority of people are wearing face masks at all times, regardless whether there's a pandemic or not. I think time will tell us on that one. I think we're still the verdict is still out on that one. So let's talk about the kids and anxiety heading back to class. We all remember uh, the butterflies and and all the excitement surrounding back to class. Now there's this new added uh, element with COVID-19. Advice for parents to, you know, to keep the kids cautious but not be overly fearful. My advice to parents actually is, is get them excited again, because I agree with you. I think most parents are really anxious and the children are there. You know, they know children are exceptionally smart. They know that there's a level of anxiety that is high. They're probably even concerned themselves. Uh, they know there is something called COVID-19 out there, and they probably have some understanding of how bad this virus is. And so we need to reassure our children that we're doing the best that we can. And the way we do that is we share with them the information. We, we, uh, uh, you know, we treat them like they're adults, and we speak to them 
at a, at a level that they can understand, but with full transparency on what's going on. And we tell them that it's a, you know, we're taking a little bit of a risk, but we're hoping for the best. And if you keep your face mask on, you keep practicing safe hygiene, you listen to your teacher about distancing if they're young age and they need that direction, then you're going to be okay. And as your parent, I am there to support you through this and to figure this out. And But also we need to empathize with the parents themselves because they're probably very anxious. And it's okay if you're a parent out there and you need help Please, I ask of you, reach out. Reach out to healthcare providers, to mental health support individuals, to school boards, to other people who, who are willing and happy to help figure this out with you. You're not alone. And find out other parents are probably going through the exact same thoughts you're going through. So support each other. We need the community to really stand with each other as we figure this stage out. Well said, Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, medical doctor and health policy expert. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thanks to you. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've been talking about uh, the movement that's going on with Black Lives Matter and what has happened in the wake of the Jacob Blake case and uh, what we're seeing in professional sports and them postponing games uh, for the last couple of days and, and heading into the weekend. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Grace Adenyeyi Oguyenkin is with us, and she is an assistant professor, Queen's National Scholar in Black Geography. Department of Geography and Planning and Gender Studies, Queen's University. Doctor, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Uh, yes, thank you very much. I'm fine, thank you. And yourself? I'm doing well, thank you. So your That's thoughts good. on what has happened in the wake of uh, the Jacob uh, of the Jacob Blake story and how we have seen professional sport teams uh, react to this, is this going to make a difference? I think it has the potential to make a difference, and I guess it depends on, I mean, what we're calling difference, right? So for me, at least from my perspective, I'm excited about this moment because the players are in solidarity, and in a way, they're inviting the rest of us who might otherwise be entertained on TV to have more of a conversation around this because some of us are ignoring this conversation around um, and around um, around racism, specifically anti-black racism. So in the sense, for the players to say that uh, we can't focus, well, well, in this case, the NBA players, for them to say, for the Milwaukee players to say that day that we can't focus on basketball right now, that's important. And so in that sense, I think if we can have more people with, a, um, with large platforms who are influential, demanding change, particularly um, around policing in the U.S. and I suppose Canada as well, then there is potential to be a difference. The, mo- there, the more the rest of us are educated about it, because I think that's the key issue. A lot of us are not educated about systemic racism. A lot of us don't really know what it means. A lot of us don't understand that there are biases in the system. So the more we're educated about it, perhaps the more the rest of us will also join on the bandwagon to protest against racism. And let's be honest here, Doctor, it's the white community that isn't understanding this. Why are they (laughs) not understanding this? Why are they not seeing what you see? Well, I think it's because, and I think that's why, um, and I think that's why in, in these protested movements, um, there's often the use of systemic racism as well, not just racism. I think it's because when people hear racism or or racist, they often take it to be a personal thing, right? right? That, oh, well, I'm a nice person, I'm not racist. But they don't realize that it's about the everyday experiences of people, right? That 
automatically there's just some biases against people based on the way they look. And in this particular case, we're talking about um, people who are not white. So, for example, I have a son, and um, and I've my experiences with him in certain systems has been pretty interesting. So when he was younger, I was trying to get help for him for um, – for speech therapy, and the first day he met with the person who was supposed to help him, she was trying to play bubbles with him just to warm up, <laughs> just to warm up with him, mm. right? And and my son loved bubbles, so he was trying to grab the, the bubbles from her. And then I read the report later, and she wrote that he was impulsive and aggressive. And I was like, this is a two-year-old. Um, he's a kid. Like, he's doing what any child would do, but I knew, based on my own experiences based on my education that this was more than just about a child. It was because he was also being seen automatically as being aggressive because he's black. So for those of us who are people of color, we experience this on our every like everyday basis because of our color. And I think another key example um that 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 drives this point home is Jacob Blake was shot in the back. Right, yeah. and then a few days later, there's Kyle, and he's a white guy. He has a gun on yeah. him, and people are saying he just shot people, and they completely ignore him. There's Dylan Roof who shot a bunch of people, and then he was still treated like a human being after he was arrested. So there's a difference. There's already automatic assumptions about aggressions when you're not most of the time when you're not white, and so therefore, there you're treated with bias. And, and, you know, uh, we were just talking about this uh, in the with the guests that we just had and and use this example of systemic racism and white privilege. And Mm -hmm. that being in in Wisconsin, when the protests uh, started and what you're referring to is a 17 year old white kid who's walking down the street with a a, I don't know, an AR-15, some sort of automatic weapon Mm -hmm. or such. And he's literally walking by police and nobody is questioning him. And then he goes and shoots two people. If that was a black person, they wouldn't have been able to take two steps. And I don't think you have to be a professor to figure this out. Uh, So if that isn't an example of systemic racism, I don't know what is. Exactly. Exactly. And, And I think what shocks me is that some people are still not getting it. It's still not, you know, and it's like, and I think a lot of us who are, um, who are protesting racism, especially anti-black racism, were like, the evidence is there. It's clear as day. And they still think that some of us are being overly emotional about it and we're not making sense. But, yes, like what you just said, it's like it's, it's clear it's right there. So people should hopefully understand that this is what systemic racism is. This is how it works. And this is, ex- this is the experiences of some of us in our, like our every day. These are things we always have to think about when we step out, when, we're in, when we send our children to school, when we're in the grocery store, when we're driving, you know? I'm still uh, trying to understand why a lot of white people don't get this. And I think you hit on something interesting here, Grace, a minute ago when you said people, uh, white people will become offended. And because mm-hmm. they feel, well, I'm not a racist person, so this uh-huh. doesn't go on. And exactly. that's not the argument here. It, it, it's time mm-hmm. that white people stop taking this personally as if people are talking about them and instead yeah. talking about the system. And I think what happens is a lot of people just say, uh, you know, it makes them feel bad. It doesn't make them feel good. Mm-hmm. So they just shut it down yeah. and they walk away from the discussion as yeah. opposed to digging deeper past the first layer here. 
Yes, and and the thing is, I mean, this isn't. I mean, this isn't just. I mean, in this particular situation, this is a white case. But a lot of us, whatever color our skins are, we don't want to ever feel guilty about things, right? So there's this. You know, there's this. I mean, I think if I recall correctly from my psychology days, there's this, this term called cognitive dissonance. You always want to, you never want, to, you always want to be somehow feeling good about yourself. And the instant you start thinking, oh, maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I am a bad person, or maybe this and this, and then you just, and then, and then you try to find ways to reconcile things, right? You try to find ways to make yourself feel good. So even though you're not the one that maybe is directly being nasty or mean, but once you start realizing the ways in which you participate in this particular system, once you rec- once you start realizing that, oh, I'm refusing to learn about this or I'm refusing to unlearn certain things. Like, for example, for myself, um, I, I've been here, I've been in Canada for a number of years now, but I came as an immigrant. I had to unlearn a, a lot of things about the stereotypes I learned about Indigenous people because I was educated wrongly, but that took work, and some of us aren't willing to do that work because then it means that we might have to give up certain privileges that we might have, right? It means that we might have to recognize that we're not we're not perfect, whether it's an individual thing or the way we participate or the way we are complicit or silent, right? And and in these situations, like, we can't be silent anymore about a lot of things. We can't just listen to people make fun of people or watch someone beat someone up and not say anything and say that that's wrong, you know? So I think that's part of what it is, and a lot of us are not ready to, to talk um, and speak up. And this isn't, I mean, in the situation we're talking about here, this is about race and white people, but this is something that resonates with a lot of us, right? Are we moving forward? Many said that the George Floyd situation was a tipping point, that his, th- this has changed thing and that changed things, and all of a sudden, you know, the incident with Jacob Blake. So, mm-hmm. wh- you know, uh, obviously we're, we're reacting even more sensitively towards this than, uh-huh. than the first situation, but I don't, is it, does it have to be a few more of these before we figure it out? Uh, are, do you get the feeling we are moving forward? This is a really good question, and I mean, I don't know if I have the answer yet because this is something that my friends and I have been discussing because I remember when the George Floyd incident happened, I couldn't even watch the video, and I I just, and I mean, the pro, like the movement was global. Everybody was issuing statements, including universities, and 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 I told my friend, I'm like, I don't, I don't know if this is going to change anything. Is this just a... Is this just a particular moment that we're in? Are some of us bored because of the pandemic? Is there really going to be change? I'm like, things like this have been happening for years. Like, not saying is really new, but I think, I think maybe the potential difference around this is we're in a particular moment where technology is more widespread. Globalization is a is a real thing. It's in. It's like we see it on our phones and our TVs. If we can all be more educated about these these issues, I think there's potential for change. For me, from my perspective, I think education is a big thing. If we don't understand why these things are happening, if we can't, um, if, if we if we if we don't understand the, the the history and all that stuff, we can't we can't make change, and they can't we can't leave it in the hands of certain people, in the hands of certain activists. Like more of us need to be on board, and more of us need to demand change. And I think once that starts to happen, then I think we may potentially move forward. But for now. Um, 
but until we're all until we're all in solidarity with each other until we all realize that these issues are connected. Like, for example, I can't talk about anti-black racism in Canada without recognizing that there are issues, that there are um, um, issues concerning indigenous people, that there are other racialized people right. in, in Canada who have issues as well. So, so we have to realize that these issues are connected and we need to be, we need to have some kind of platform in solidarity to ask and demand for change. Dr. Grace Adenyeye has been with uh, Dr. Grace Adenyeye Ogu Yankin has been with us, uh, Assistant Professor, Queens National Scholar in Black Geographies Department of Geography and Planning and Gender Studies, Queens University. Grace, uh, fascinating discussion. Uh, hopefully, we'll chat again. It'll be interesting to see how this moves forward. Thanks for your time. Be well. Thank you as well. Take care. Uh, talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the shooting of Jacob Blake uh, seven times in the back. Uh, also, uh, how the professional sports world has reacted to this, specifically the NBA. Uh, NHL did play when the other teams, uh, other leagues, uh, postponed their games uh, and then paid a, a price afterwards for that and, and, and certainly changed their position. Let's bring in Sean Fitzgerald, managing editor and feature writer for The Athletic, and is with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks for having me. First of all, Sean, as a sports writer, what was your thought when you first heard that this was coming down and there was going to be these uh, boycotts of games? Well, I mean, it's it's a moment in a movement. It's it, it, it harkened back to, I mean, the first reaction was, I mean, how the NBA in a lot of ways led sports into the pandemic. And I mean by that is, you know, increasing awareness. When When the NBA had its first positive test, it didn't just shut down one game, it shut down the whole league. And, you know, as his colleague Bruce Arthur at the Toronto Stars said that, you know, that might have more than anything way back in March helped raise awareness around the United States and indeed around the world, um, parts of the world that hadn't already, you know, had that first wave that, that this thing is very important and very critical that we all pay attention. Um, you know, what happened this week was another moment where the NBA took the lead in a major international issue and basically snapped the entire continent um, to attention to say that, look, like, you know, we're not just entertainers. We're, we're going to use our platform. We're going to harness the power we have to make people have difficult conversations. Uh, talk about that, because many question, what, you know, what's this going to do? And I'm playing devil's advocate here. What's this going to do? How is this going to help? Uh, these people are professional athletes. They're not politicians. They're not in a position of power uh, to make the actual physical change. But how can it not help when literally uh, professional sports comes to a grinding halt and everybody wants to know why? Well, they're going to ask a question. Is that not, uh, other than doing this, are we asking the professional athletes to do too much? They've done enough by literally bringing this to our attention. We're sitting here on a Friday in the summer in Hamilton, Ontario, talking about a police shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Would we yeah. be doing that if it wasn't for athletes? Good point. Not what about the NHL? It'd be in and the it... news. It'd be in the news guaranteed yeah. but it would not be a dominant talking point like it is today and that is a credit to the athletes in the nba led it major league soccer players uh some major league baseball players some notably not um but then and then finally you know the nhl your thoughts on the nhl their position on this obviously they took some blowback for holding uh, games that night yeah i mean the full context would be that you know the nhl players who played that night 
uh, said they didn't know or that it happened. Um, you know, the, the NBA's movement happened as they were getting ready for their game and it was too late to make a decision or they just didn't know entirely. So you can take that for whatever it's worth and choose whether or not you want to believe it. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, the NHL was a step behind, several steps behind it. And I think that what this goes to is, you know, from strictly an NHL perspective, it, it's a hockey problem. It, it's not just the NHL problem. It's not the players. Um, it's, it's who the players are, where they come from. And it's a hockey problem that, you know, we've been talking about this for a while, but you know, hockey, especially in Canada, has a real problem. I, and this isn't hyperbole when I say it's an existential problem facing hockey that it's failing to reach new communities. It's failing yeah. to yeah. increase representation, that the cities around them, the country is changing and hockey has been very slow. And part of that is, you know, you're starting to see it definitely more at the upper levels where there is that lack of representation. And when you come from one community and one community that just goes to the rink and just plays hockey and just goes and plays Fortnite or Call of Duty or whatever afterwards, and you live that privileged lifestyle, yes, you're going to have problems when it comes to representation. It's interesting just having two kids, a boy and a girl, who've uh, spent their whole lives in minor hockey, how I have a different impression of of minor hockey uh, coming out than we did going in. It really is, in, in this province anyway, uh, and in the more affluent neighborhoods, it's 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 more of an elitist sport, and it's geared towards uh, the high-performance athlete as opposed to kids that just want to play. Well, and that's the thing. It's not just money. And it's, it's not just accessibility financially, but, you know, if you take a look at Brampton, Ontario, which has now become one of Canada's most populous cities, affluence isn't a problem. Like those houses are really, really expensive, but minor hockey participation has fallen off the map there that, you know, they had enormous numbers 25 years ago, and those numbers have fallen dramatically. So it's not money. I mean, money certainly is a part of it here and there. And, and, and even if you are very wealthy, uh, hockey is a very expensive sport just to dabble your toe into. What this is, is, is a fundamental grassroots issue. And I'm not laying blame here directly because minor hockey is administered in Hamilton and where I grew up in Burlington and where I am now in Toronto by very well-meaning volunteers who, yep. who might be driving your bus, who might be your pediatrician, who might be whatever, and they're volunteering their time to deliver programming to the community. The issue is, is that one, volunteerism has been a real challenge. The people don't volunteer as much. And two, mm. the people who had volunteered have been doing this for decades and, again, might not represent all the communities that have you know, emerged in your city. So what you have is, is you have one community represented on the board. Their concerns are being met, whereas maybe issues and questions and, and, and outreach to other communities aren't being addressed. So what you have then is sort of silos where you're not having people feel welcome or feel that the game is, quote, for them. Uh, isn't it ironic how we all say sport brings us together, it unites, what have you? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be fascinating if we look back at this situation, you know, the, the shooting of uh, – of uh, Jacob Blake and and that of George Floyd and the movement in sports that that is actually a turning point. It's actually sport that makes us look at this differently. I mean, it would certainly be wonderful if this did lead to a, a conversation and to fundamental change. Um, I mean, at this moment, politically in 2020, heading into you know the U.S what is, I think, aptly being described as one of the most important elections in United States history. Uh, there's still a lot of history to be written around that. But I think that, you know, if sports could be a catalyst, I, I think these athletes have done very well to use their platforms as they have. 
Well said. Sean Fitzgerald has been with us, managing editor, feature writer with The Athletic, talking about what is going in the sports world in regard to the Black Lives Matter movement. Sean, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Have a great weekend. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, I want to bring something up that uh, we talked about actually a long time ago with Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and Canadians for Affordable Energy. Uh, and, you know, there's been lots of debate about energy in this uh, country, uh, specifically now as we, you know, come out of COVID-19 and are looking for recovery plans. Uh, we certainly know uh, the natural resources that are in Alberta. The problem is they can't get them to market. Uh, even uh, uh, the East Coast refinery, Urban's East Coast refinery, uh, gets uh, the majority of its oil from Saudi Arabia. And then that uh, fuels Eastern Canada and the Eastern uh, United States. So even Canada can't get its own product to its own refineries on the East Coast. Uh, and, and of course, the uh, the Energy's pipeline, uh, pretty much with its demise, killed any chances of of the energy going from east to or sorry from west to east. Uh, Quebec pretty much putting a stop at that. Yet when there's a rail strike, they're the first ones to complain that they're not getting train loads of propane in. Uh, and you'd think they'd be a little bit more sensitive to transporting fuel by rail, considering uh, what has happened in that province uh, and accidents and such. So uh, we talked about this, that, that now imagine this, Alberta oil goes through the pipeline. So first it travels west uh, to go to Vancouver and then picks up on a barge uh, or a tanker, then goes south down through the Panama Canal, then goes east again uh, to get through there and then back up north to drop off a load in the in uh, the east coast of Canada to then get refined. Instead of just shipping it via pipeline, we're actually sending it via tanker down the coast of the west, through the Panama Canal, and then back up the east coast, which to me just seems absolutely asinine. But the first ship has gone through. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP, Canadians for Affordable Energy. He's with us now. Dan, what are your thoughts on this first ship going through? Well, I think it pointed out the ridiculousness of uh, federal policy in terms of uh, obstructing uh, and uh, uh, turning away the idea of, uh, of building a pipeline that would uh, ensure that Canadian pr- uh, products make their way to uh, an ever-increasing uh, you know, refinery picture in eastern Canada. I say that because uh, the Irving Refinery, which is Canada's largest, at about 330,000 barrels a day of production, they just acquired a another refinery that I helped save, the Combat Chance Refinery in Newfoundland. Right. Um, and that's 130,000 barrels a day. Uh, and you do this in the context of understanding that uh, the U.S. Eastern Seaboard, uh, what some refer to, and I think even the article is New England, has just lost a 300,000 barrel a day refinery uh, because of a fire a year ago or so, uh, the Philadelphia Energy Solutions refinery. But what it really means is that Eastern... The eastern seaboard is short of product, and uh, you know it, it would be very easy to move um, Canadian oil, light and heavy and synthetic, uh, through a pipeline uh, to eastern Canada. But obviously, uh, that time is gone. And of course, uh, although everyone likes to think it's TransCanada that said no, it's really the acrid environment that the federal Liberals created that uh, forced the uh, the uh, the pipeline company to uh, to abandon the idea. And nevertheless, the the need is certainly there. It has indeed increased. It's far more efficient than rail and certainly more efficient than having to travel halfway around 
the continent in order to deliver what is amounts to about a day and a half's worth of oil that that uh, refinery alone in St. John needs to uh, to run and to supply much of its uh, U.S. and Canadian customers. So will we continue to see this, Dan, Western oil going down through the Panama Canal and up, and is this profitable? I don't know if it's profitable, but I do know that it's going to happen again. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that uh, the company will uh, say that there was some success in doing this, uh, inefficient as it is. Uh, but, of course, there is concern about uh, uh, where this oil industry as a whole is going. It, too, has been subject to a major decline uh, in output. Uh, Saudi Arabia is uh, focusing its emphasis on Asia, Asian markets. They're far more lucrative, more profitable than sending oil uh, you know, our way. Um, and the same applies to the United States. Uh, you know, Saudi Aramco, the largest uh, refiner in the United States, the largest facility, uh, you know, has a, an increasing amount of its oil coming from, wait a minute, Canada. Because, of course, we do have not only the, they have not only the ability to bring in product waterborne, but they also have the ability to bring it down via pipeline. And so I suspect that we're going to see more and more uh, commitments, requirements by Irving uh, to satisfy its increased number of cu- customers by uh, by using Canadian oil. Uh, it makes sense. The price is certainly right because it's discounted by uh, best of times $8 a barrel. Right now, but it's $18 a barrel, and it's for that reason alone that it does make economic sense, uh, as it would have uh, to bring it through a pipeline. But there are, again, a lot of people out there uh, who will see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, and say that we just didn't need that pipeline. It's pretty clear that we did and that we do, and that, uh, if nothing else, the pandemic, I think, is going to raise the prospects of uh, of, uh, of the greater need of making sure that we have energy security in Canada. And the other factor, the federal Liberals have in place to bring forth a, something called a clean fuel standard. I want people to understand that that's going to apply, and it's over and above a carbon tax, and what it's likely to do is to tell refiners, if you want to continue to sell this to meet net zero, you're going to have to change your uh, output. You're going to, have to change the specs. No one in the world is required to do this on a national basis, uh, but it's going to mean higher costs. And I suspect some refiners in eastern Canada, perhaps Petrocan, Montreal, may say, hey, look, you want to get your product in from the United States, uh, too bad, so sad, but uh, we're not dealing with this anymore Canada. Now that we are actually seeing uh, tankers, tanker ships going from the West Coast down through the Panama Canal and back up the East Coast to deliver uh, Alberta product to uh, to the Maritimes, does this change the discussion? Do, is is the Energy East completely dead? Is it is it still open for debate? Where's Quebec on all of this? Well, Quebec uh, is still the largest consumer of Canadian. Uh, large vehicles and is still per capita the largest consumer of uh, fuel outside of Alberta. Uh, now Maritimes as well because of course they don't have alternatives to things like natural gas in the same way that we do here. Uh, but is the, I'm sure that the idea is, is always there to be resurrected. But again, the federal liberals brought in Bill C-48 and in particular Bill C-69, which makes it very, very difficult to get a pipeline approved, much less proposed in this country. You have a federal government that uh, you know made such a mess of the one pipeline that was a slam dunk no-brainer that they had to invest four and a half billion dollars of our money and possibly another eight million to build the extension of the expansion of the Trans Mountain pipeline. Uh, the answer is no. Uh, Canada has seen 185 billion dollars in the energy sector simply vanish. Canadians and foreign investors have, have pe- picked up their stakes and moved on. And so for that reason, no one's interested in uh, in, in out uh, outputs to 
or outlays of money to uh, to help Canada in its uh, energy needs because you have conflicting signals coming from Ottawa saying, oh, in uh, 50 years, 30 years from now, we're going to have net zero. We're all going to do it by electricity. So when you speak in Fort Kung, uh, so you say one thing, you need more, and the reality is you do need more, and then you say at the same time, but we're going to find another way not to use fossil fuels down the road. Good luck with that, by the way, because the most fossil fuels that are replaced by non-hydrocarbons are, tend to be food products, and that tends to send the price of food through the roof. Quite beyond that issue, you now have a, a dilemma. No one wants to invest in Canada, and uh, I don't know the federal government has a lot more money it can borrow. Now that's now $1.2 trillion in, uh, in hawk. All right, so September 23rd, a throne speech. Uh, either opposition will accept it or not, and then we head into an election. The Prime Minister has always said, has said and, and many say this is the reason for, one of the reasons for Morneau leaving is that he didn't agree with all the cash that was being doled out, nor the uh, heavy green recovery plan, which we're all expecting. Uh, what are you expecting there, and what do the Conservatives need to do to come up with an alternative plan? Well, I, I don't know if the Conservatives will be calling me, uh, but I do know the federal Liberals have one shot, and it's going to be this one. And they're going to make sure there's CERB payments and all the other checks that are going to go to people to appease them, because so many of you are. Um, uh, uh, they've received money, and they think it's just, you know, they can continue to print money this way, and it's a stopgap measure. Uh, I suspect the federal Liberals are going to call an election, and uh, they could very well win that election. The problem, however, is that the country is facing uh, financial economic collapse. Uh, and I don't mean to be overly emphatic, you know, 40% of your GDP, the single single largest quarterly drop in output. It means that, you know, while the country is going deeper into debt, its ability to pay has just taken a 40% hit. So uh, it's, a, it's a double whammy. Uh, if ordinary folks that are, you know, like the previous call you had on there, seniors are concerned about doing more for seniors, the last thing you want is a Liberal government going out and spending $22 billion to give money to everybody, especially seniors who are making $250,000 a year because the government should have simply dropped the GIS and focused on the OAS. In other words, they could have simply gone and targeted those truly poor seniors who need help, like your previous caller. Uh, what you have is very bad policies in which the government is simply throwing money at it, and that's going to win short-term votes. But in the long term, the pain is there. And as a Liberal of 38 years, I can say that... Uh, Unless something changes dramatically, folks, uh, your vote for the Liberal Party in the next election is going to cost you in ways that you could not possibly fathom. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP, Canadians for Affordable Energy. Uh, late last month, for the first time, a tanker goes through the Panama Canal to deliver oil from Alberta in the west, south, and then across and back up to the east coast. Dan, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Really appreciate this. Thanks, Scott. Have a great weekend. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.